Alrighty, welcome to another episode of Constructed Resources. I'm one of your hosts, LSV, and I am joined on the line by BK, straight from Denver, Colorado, as actually we both are. <laughs> BK, uh, how's life here in uh, the, the Mile High City treating you? It's okay. Uh, I mean, it's I always... It's funny. I looked outside this morning and I saw there's a bunch of snow on the ground and I was like, oh, I guess it's cold outside, but it just goes to show how few days I'm even leaving the apartment. But it, it's all right. We're we're having a good time here. It's been interesting. Been been actually playing some competitive tournament magic prep the last week or so now getting ready for the Zendikar Rising set championship. And it's been a while since my last tournament. I've had to shake off a bit of the rust, to be honest. <laughs> Oh yeah, the old Rust Elemental. Tell you what, since you already you already guessed what you think uh, me and my team are going to be playing, we won't reveal that yet. Next week on the podcast, decks will already have been submitted. Before decks are submitted, and before I ask you, I will also tender uh, a guess as to what you have submitted, and, and we can reveal on the podcast and see see who is more right. Uh, before we get to that, though, we've got today's show. We're going to be talking about aggro control. This is the deck archetype breakdown, and. I love aggro control. I actually think it might be my favorite deck to play, and it's just so unbelievably good uh, when it comes together, though it is very hard to play and very hard to play against. Uh, before we get to that, our sponsor, of course, is ChannelFireball.com. And right now on Channel Fireball, we're doing a Black Friday sale where if you buy singles with cash, you get 20% back in store credit. So you spend $100 on singles and cash, you'll get $20 back in store credit. Uh, store credit will be back by, uh, will get into your account by mid-December. And it's a fantastic deal. If you're ever thinking about picking up any magic cards or flesh and blood or anything else, now's a great time to, to, to buy some singles and get your 20% back. All right, BK, let, hit us with some decks of the week, why don't you? Yep, so our first deck of the week is Azorius Yorian Taxes in Modern, and this deck list got third place in the most recent Modern Challenge. And so what we've got is the base of sort of disruptive white creatures that we've come to know and love in Modern and Legacy that do things like Leon and Arbiter and Thalia Guardian of Thraben to sort of mess with your opponent's ability to, you know, do all of the things that they want to do in a turn, whether it's play spells or search up lands and then we've gotten some new additions in the last couple of years spell queller a few years ago is a pretty great one and then the new one skyclave apparition of course is a four of copy here uh the reason why i really wanted to highlight this one was that it got to take advantage of an old modern combo that we haven't seen in a while which is flicker wisp with sort of face down or alternate played cards and when i first started playing modern it was a little bit of a tier like three thing with a chroma angel of fury where you would morph in a chroma then bile in a flicker wisp and then immediately flip it up into this giant eight cost six six fatty with just a billion abilities and it was a really cool thing to see and this one doesn't have something exactly on that scale but it takes advantage of the fact that you can play glass pool mimic that's one of the new mythic double faced cards and that's the one that turns into a copy of one of your creatures. You can play it as a land in the early game. You're an Aether Vial deck. And then with Flicker Wisp, well, you can flip it up and you can turn it into anything from, maybe you're doing it into speed. You turn it into a Spell Queller, a Skyclave Apparition. You could turn it into a Flicker Wisp for, you know, potentially even a second set of Flickers. Um, oh, I guess the way that that would work is you would Flicker Wisp and trans- it comes back at end of turn with Flicker Wisp. Yeah, but so not, same- not a Spell Queller combo, but everything yes. else you talked about was good. Yeah. Also, also, with Aether Vial, you can buy all this in because it counts as the Glass Poem Mimic on its front side in your hand, 
giving you access to to more copies. I actually uh, wrote a deck highlight on this deck because it was so cool. Uh, though I still think three spell quellers seems egregious to me. So, <laughs> I agree with that. Spell queller is fantastic, especially you get to play that Teferi time raveler combo where if you have a spell queller in play and a Teferi, it doesn't even matter if they remove the spell queller, they just still won't be able to cast it due to the timing restrictions from Teferi. I, I also have, have I think, profited pretty nicely over the, the past you know year or so by removing Charming Prince from any deck where Charming Prince is contained and replacing <laughs> it with other magic cards that are legal in the format. <laughs> so far, I have not been impressed with the card. <laughs> yeah, I'm inclined to agree with that. Though one. I think I mean, this deck is awesome. <laughs> yeah, it mostly just ends up being like two mana flicker a creature for a 2-2 body, which isn't enough. I mean, cards like Flicker Wisp and Restoration Angel, they really do get by on the fact that they are just solid creatures with having three power worth of flying stats. So, but this deck is super sweet and it does have Yorian and it, it it's kind of hard to build Yorian Aether Vial decks, but this one manages to pull it off. It's, you know, the classic case of a deck that's so built around four copies of a card in Aether Vial, it's like, do you really want to stretch that to 80? But in the case of a deck with so many awesome things to blink, uh, Yorian sort of gets the nod here and you get to bring in one of those copies of that Flying Serpent to blink all of your Skyclave apparitions and whatnot in the late game. This was a nice selection of an aggro control deck, BK, but uh, <laughs> why don't you tell us about, about our next deck here? <laughs> All right. Our next deck won the CFB Clash this past weekend, and this is Teamer Ram slash Teamer Adventures or Teamer Odd. It goes by a lot of different names, and it's kind of funny. It I was looking at some metagame stats on this deck the other day, and it was like it was getting distorted by the fact that people just keep labeling this deck different things. But if you haven't seen this deck, what it does is it takes the essentially the old Teamer Adventures deck, so it's the adventure creatures we've all come to know and love and get used to playing against a lot. Edgewall and Keeper, Bonecrusher Giant, Lovestruck Beast, Brazen Borrower, Beanstalk Giant. But then it takes advantage of the fact that they're all odd cost cards. It adds an Obosh to the sideboard. It plays Terror of the Peaks as its five drop, and then it scales all the way up with Cultivate, to being able to play Genesis Ultimatum. And if you've never Genesis Ultimatumed into a copy of Terror of the Peaks plus uh, Beanstalk Giant, well, it just does an incredible amount of damage out of nowhere. You get to immediately kill something, and then once the game stretches on even a little bit longer, you start turning all of those Lovestruck Beasts into five damage removal spells with your Terror of the Peaks. And so this is a deck that has a fantastic early game because Lovestruck Beast and Bone Crusher Giant are some of the best anti-aggro cards we've seen in a while but just still has an extremely powerful top-end finish with that Genesis Ultimatum. I wonder, yeah, if, if getting Obosh as a companion is enough. I guess this deck's not making very many sacrifices in terms of playing odd costs, and I, I, I expect that's where the genesis of this deck came from, is, hey, this deck's, the, 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 you know, the, the non-Obosh team or ramp deck is like, probably got just a couple cards that are evens. It just so happens that all the cards they want to play are odd costs. So at that point... You're not cutting very much that's important, and you get Obosh, and that's a huge upside. Yeah, I think the two most common things I've seen from people playing past iterations of this deck without Obosh were Lotus Cobra and two-mana removal like Scorching Dragonfire or Fire Prophecy. And I, I like moving away from Lotus Cobra. I think one of the defining features of what makes Adventure decks so good is that the creatures do a good job of providing you value through removal. And Lotus Cobra, it's a little bit harder to set up, but that's one's got a little bit more of like a Bane Slayer-y, hey, if you don't kill it, I'm going to get farther ahead. And then in the case of the removal effects, 
if you want to stretch up to Genesis Ultimatum, it's really nice if you can afford to just cut your dedicated spot removal and just rely on things like those creatures I just, the adventure creatures I just mentioned, to be the disruptive element that'll help you bridge and ensure you still are drawing enough mana sources as you're not drawing dead cards against something like uh, Demir Control by just having a, a Scorching Dragonfire stuck in your hand. Yeah, this deck's sweet. I've, I've played against it a few times on the ladder. All right. So taking a look at our main topic, what is aggro control and why is it the sweetest? <laughs> is it the sweetest? Yeah, I mean, I, I I don't know if it's the sweetest, but it's it's got some cool stuff going on. So aggro control, like broadly, it's an archetype where you combine cheap threats and disruption. Almost always counters, though. Uh, I think discard can also play into it as well. And that's basically it. It's, it, it's trying to describe the experience of you getting to play just a couple cards and instead of like imagine a mono red deck right you it's it's trying to play a bunch of little things then finish you off with burn well an aggro control deck is trying to to put a couple threats down and then counter whatever or or deal with or disrupt whatever it is that you would do to stop those things it's different from an aggro deck in that it's trying to control the game a little bit more. It's usually got more control elements, counters in particular. But it's also different than a control deck because it actually puts pressure on the opponent. If you've ever played against an aggro control deck, you kind of understand what this tempo-y game feels like when you play against a Delver of Secrets or a Vendillion Click or a Geist of St. Traft or you know any of these cards backed up by them having, oh, they had the mana leak. They had Snapcaster into the second mana leak. Oh, they had the remand. and Or, or you're playing as rogues in standard, they had the second drown of the lock. It's just like nothing I could do. This is this is what it feels like to play against these aggro control decks that, you know, usually play like something like eight to 12 threats is a way more common than 20. And then have, you know, somewhere between like six and 12 counters or, or otherwise disruptive cards. And they just try to keep you off balance and, and win... One of the defining features of aggro control decks is when you lose to them, you feel like you messed up. You feel like, oh, I, I knew I shouldn't have played in, you know, to, to to the mana leak. I should have waited an extra turn to play around it. But then the games, when you try to do that, they just had the extra threat and, and it was just too late, whatever it was you were trying to resolve. Uh, these decks can simultaneously be, the, I think, among the most fun to play, but also the most frustrating to play against. Weird that I would like a deck like that. And uh, there, there is a range here. You, I think even in standard, you can see on, on one end, you've got Crab Rogues, which has Merfolk Wind Robbers and Ruined Crabs and Lurus and is fairly aggressive. Those, of course, does have some counters. On the other hand, there was the Shark Rogue decks that, that we played in the first week of Rivals that was... Just the eight rogues, shark typhoons, way more counters. And they both have the aggro control uh, experience there, but one of them has way more counters and fewer threats, and the others, you know, switches that around for a more aggressive build. So, aggro control, of course, just like every other archetype, has a range. But in general, it, if you look at a deck that's got some counters and, a, and some cheap, cheap, you know, threats that are on the cheaper side, but not as much the one drops, but more in the two to three drop range, that, that's often an aggro control deck. Yeah, it's frequently you're trying to like take off one of those early turns, and one and the nice thing about it being sort of two to three mana is is it it's in that range where you don't necessarily need to play it on turn two or turn three, but it gives you a lot of flexibility for which turn you can deploy your threat on and still be able to play either an aggressive game. If even if you get it down a turn or two later, but also you can sneak it down early. You can maybe take advantage of the fact that your opponent might be slow coming out of the gate and not giving you anything to react to. I mean, one of the weaknesses sometimes for a control decks, of course, is just 
you just have mana leaks and your opponent just doesn't play a spell in the first couple of turns and you literally burn your mana. And it's like, if you just had something to do with your mana, you could be using that to get ahead. Fragger control decks, they frequently try to take advantage of that and will punish opponents who come out of the gate with weak draws. Yeah, and of course, Flash plays in heavily too, where a lot of these decks get to get to have their cake and eat it too, leave up their counter spell. You don't play something they deem worthy of countering. They just add another threat to the board. Uh, so let's let's go over some of the strengths and weaknesses of the decks before we take a look at some of the historically awesome aggro control decks. Uh, for strengths, this is, I, I think, the hardest deck to play against because yeah. it's not clear what they're trying to accomplish in a given game or, you know, are they going to be more of the beatdown path? Are they going to be more of the control path? Should I tap out for this? Do I need to kill this threat on site? Can I develop my game plan? And these decks often leave you kind of forked <laughs> where uh, like as in a fork in the road uh, where you, you end up having to make a choice about what to lose to. And the, one of the classic ones that always felt terrible was you were playing against Lauren block fairies and they had Mistbind Click, which is a four mana, four, four flying flash that taps all your lands. And they had Cryptic Command, which, you know, counters a spell and draws a card or, or taps your team. And you're, you're looking at your fairy's opponent and you're like, all right, I'm going to attack you first. So you, you attack and then they go Mistbind Click. They tap all your lands. They maybe ambush your creature. Or even if they don't have a block, maybe they tapped all your lands and you can't play anything else. Or you cast a spell first and they go Cryptic, counter it, tap your whole team. And and it feels like there's no way you had no real way out of it, regardless of which one you played into, you'd lose to the other one. And of course, it was the most frustrating when they just had both and you didn't know that they had both. So you felt like you played into the wrong one uh, against, uh, you know, aggro control decks that are a little more sane these days don't have access to these kind of ridiculous cards. You still kind of end up in that spot. You're playing as rogues and you're like, all right. I don't want to tap out. They only have one thing in play. I'm going to leave up a removal spell. Then end of turn, they just cast an into the story or they play two more threats and you feel like, oh, I should have just tapped out. But then if you had tapped out and they, and they had Drown in the Lock or Essence Scatter and then plus a Thieves Guild Enforcer, you're like, why did I tap out for my five drop and just let them exploit that with their two mana card? And it can be really tough to play against these decks, often leaving your opponent questioning their plays. And sometimes it, it kind of leads your opponent on a path where they make inconsistent plays, where sometimes, you know, they're, they, they should just be focused on either just ignoring your threats and trying to resolve theirs or killing yours. And sometimes you can kind of put them off balance to where they're just making a new play every turn and they're not really adding up to something that would work. Uh, these decks are also really strong because they're flexible. They get to lean into the different aspects either on a per game basis or uh, sometimes like in a metagame, you can build your deck to be more controlling if that's what's more appropriate or more aggressive. And it can be really strong to have that flexibility. Uh, these decks are also really hard to sideboard against. BK, why, why is that? <laughs> <laughs> well, they're very hard to sideboard against because you typically don't know exactly which threats are still going to be in their deck post board. You don't have a good sense of exactly where their game plan is going to shift. If you think about it from the perspective of you know, somebody's sort of standing in the middle of a straight of a line with, you know, like it's a spectrum. Well, sideboarding sort of gives you 15 cards and they sort of allow you to reshape, you know, when you think about it, about a quarter of your deck at the maximum. If you're right in the middle between aggro and control, it's much easier for you to move a little bit more towards the aggressive side, or you can move a little bit more towards the control side. And the experience of what it's going to be like to play against and what it demands of your opponent is going to be quite different depending upon which direction you go. If you just start off with a pure, you know, mono red all in deck with tons and tons of one drops, you just don't have that much room to go. And if you start off with something which is playing with 
tons and tons of counter spells and card draw, well, you can bring in a few threats and maybe they can hedge in by bring, leaving in a few answers to the typical threats from your deck that they have in the sideboard. And they're pretty well set up for either strategy. It's going to be too hard to break either one of their cards. But when you get to do something like take uh, the Mardu Vehicles deck, um, which wasn't exactly a pure aggro control deck, but it's in the same sort of space in that they would frequently take out their one drops and bring in Planeswalkers. Or if you do that with any of the sort of the decks, Planeswalkers being the most one of the most common extra threats to bring in, those do such a good job of sort of testing which elements, which way you're going to go. Because you might be trying to bring in lots more removal to deal with their cheap rogues, and next thing you know, they've got some Ashiok staring you down, something along that line, like or a Shark Typhoon that's resolved, and now you just don't have cards which are working at all against what they're doing. Yeah, it, it's ridiculous. When you play against a mono red deck, you know that you want shock in your deck because it kills all their creatures. When you play against a control deck, you know you don't want shock in your deck because it doesn't do anything. When you play against an aggro control deck, sometimes you feel like the best card in the world would be shock to stop their cheap 2-2 threat. And sometimes you draw shock against your opponent who's just on a deck full of counterspells and shark typhoons. And it can really punish you for for guessing wrong. And the cool thing is, it th- this tends to... It, this, the 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 whole threat reaction sort of dance really punishes the person on the more reactive side more than the person on the threat side because as we've gone over at other times i board in shock you've got a you've got a 2-2 if i draw the shock and you draw the 2-2 that's a slight advantage to me but not a huge one but if i draw shock and you don't draw the 2-2 and you draw the other elements that's really bad for me and if you draw your threat and i don't have an answer that's also bad for me so more of the scenarios actually end up being good for the aggro control side and then last uh Part of the having the aggro element is, which is an advantage compared to control decks, is you get to punish people who stumble. You punish someone who moles to five or who misses their third land drop. Or if it's a bad matchup, you're way more capable of stealing it. Control decks don't really steal games or matchups. That's just not something they're very well equipped to do. Obviously, anyone can beat someone who doesn't play a land on turn two. But when you have a bad matchup near a control deck, the way the games are going to go, they're going to go long. They're going to draw out of it and do their thing. And if that's not good for you, that's not good for you. The aggro control deck can still just be like, well, I, I'm just going to play a two drop in, into a Geist of St. Traft. And you're just dead in two turns. It doesn't really matter what what you have going if you can't answer this. Yeah, I think this is experience is most acute in the older formats, um, in modern and in legacy. And when you are playing a deck like Delver in legacy or something like a Just Guy Snapcaster Mage deck in Modern that has a few more creatures, maybe Vendelian Clicks and Brazen, Bar- Brazen Borrowers, you just notice such a big difference when you have to play against some of the, oftentimes, the ramp strategies in those formats, the ones that are sort of preying on the counterspell decks by just playing tons and tons of haymakers, that if your counterspells are backed up by some Wraths, that is just not getting it done. But when you can just actually play a cheap creature, you might be able to sort of hold the tide for enough turns, counter enough plays, and then you just actually win those games. And that's oftentimes what's made decks like Delver and Legacy such a strong option is that they have a way to to back up their universal interaction in the form of Wasteland and Force of Will with some actual pressure. Yeah, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had the experience where I'm playing like one of these like mid-range blue piles in Legacy and my opponent's just doing something ridiculously over the top involving Cavern of Souls <laughs> or Cloud Posts or, or or whatever it is. Then again, and then when I queue up with a with like a Delver or Death Shadow type deck and it's like, oh, I can play turn one Delver and then count, I just need to counter like one spell and use one Wasteland and then bolt them and then they're dead. And 
it it really limits your opponent's uh, kind of options when you when you end up compressing the t- the scale of the game or the time frame of the game so much. Still, these decks do have weaknesses. Uh, moving on to weaknesses, uh, well, I do consider this a weakness. It's even though some people like it, it's the hardest deck type to play. And don't think of that as an advantage. I, I understand people people conflate the the first <laughs> point we have here. I put as a strength, it's the hardest deck to play against. That is a strength. I put as a weakness, it's hard to play because. It's a common fallacy, especially among better players, to be like, well, this deck's really hard, so therefore it's rewarding. And it's like, well, being hard is not intrinsically good. Wouldn't you rather not have access, you know, more opportunities to screw up? That said, we're all gluttons for punishment. So when we hear, oh, this deck's hard to play, everyone's eyes light up. But it is not actually an advantage. And aggro control decks are especially punishing if you ever don't know, you know, what's going on in a format or what's going on in your opponent's deck or what answers they could have or what threats they could have or 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 even just calculating the, you know, how close you are to ending the game. All those things add up. And this is one of those decks that it, by definition, doesn't have just one plan. And it's harder because when you play an aggro deck or you play a control deck, yes, each game's different. And sometimes you have to, like, you know, stretch your, your skills and, and adapt to new situations. But in general, you kind of know what those plans are. Agro-control decks just don't play like that. You just have dramatically different games, even in the same match. And it's very skill-testing as a result, which I think does make them a worse choice if you don't have ample time to prepare with them. Yeah, I mean, one thing, one way to, a common way to win games of Magic is to just either build up to some sort of unbeatable, gigantic card. And for, you know, for a ramp deck, it's something like Genesis Ultimatum. For a control deck, it might be something like Teferi Hero of Dominaria. And once you get to the point where you get to play one of those cards, it washes away a lot of what's happened earlier in the game. They might provide you with so much in return for it that it's just really not going to matter. And the work has sort of been done. You could probably get the car. Oftentimes, you can get whatever you want with those cards. You could choose the modes on Teferi Hero of Dominaria sometimes randomly. And it still pushes you to just an incredible win rate. When you play with something like an aggro control strategy, you're frequently eschewing playing with those kind of top end cards and instead just relying on the fact of time is an oftentimes an important characteristic. You are not oftentimes playing nearly as much pure card advantage as other strategies. And instead, you're going to use your removal in your interaction to give yourself the kind of time that you need for you to actually clock and finish your opponent off. And the if you sort of use one unnecessary removal spell early on in the game so that you can't get their one last creature out of the way uh, from being able to block, then you the game might just slip away from you. And so you sort of end up making a lot of cri- very critical and important decisions throughout various stages of the game. And none of them, and you don't oftentimes get the very loud flashing, this was obviously right or wrong sort of thing that you do with aggro control strategies where... If you don't have counter spells up for a key turn with a control deck and you just lose some unbeatable planeswalker, that's an easy takeaway. If you play too many things in a wrath with an aggro deck, easy takeaway. Aggro control, you oftentimes have to take calculated risks that will sometimes work and sometimes won't and won't ultimately be reflective of the actual correctness of your decision. Yeah, very good deck where you have to you, you get the delayed gratification and you kind of have to separate your decisions and the results, which is not a bad habit to get into anyway. Uh Another disadvantage is that when these decks don't have the right forms of disruption, then they can be really vulnerable. So we've talked about some yes. of the greats here, right? Like Manalik. Manalik's just like one of the, the the quintessential aggro control cards. Drown the Lock right now is just incredible. It has its weaknesses where if you don't draw an early rogue, sometimes the card's dead. But honestly, Drown the Lock is just a the, 
probably the best reason to play rogues. It's just unconditional counter plus unconditional removal. It's exactly what you're looking for. But when you do have to rely on like, you remember the blue-green tempo decks or blue-red tempo decks that were around for a little while last year, like Quench? Quench, <laughs> Quench kind of sucks. And when you have Quench, sometimes you're just going to have you know, be susceptible to cards that get around it. So sometimes these aggro control decks don't have quite the blanket answers they're looking for. And as such, they can be pretty vulnerable because they're they're really leaning on their disruption to carry them past the finish line. They need, they need it to work. Yeah, and it, it's kind of like blue has sort of the best in this regard in terms of the right kinds of interaction because counter magic is is so good. Um, uh, discard oftentimes can serve an important role for aggro control decks because they allow you to sort of pick <laughs> at whatever part of the game you want to be fighting the axis on while you're getting your clock in. And you don't you can rely on the aggressive nature of some of your cards to make up for the fact that discard can't it permanently deal with things and it can't solve everything, but it can at least give you the time. And then red sort of has, I would say another is the other color that has good agro control interactive elements because of the, the face, the fact that lightning bolt can go upstairs. It's really about as simple as that. <laughs> I mean, lightning bolt counters all their spells if it kills them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, and uh, the, the, the last really weakness I think this deck has is, you are paying a price for your lack of focus. In some matchups, it's better to be just all out aggressive. In some matchups, it's better to just be completely controlling. This deck trying to do both means that there's some matchups where just having the option is actually just a downside and you should just be focusing on one and then it's just going to be a little bit worse, uh, more more ill-suited to doing that. Now, what, are, what are some of the historically great decks? And by the way, when aggro control is good, it can be just absurdly dominant because this deck really can't do everything you need it to do in every matchup when it has the right tools. Yeah, I mean, the classic the classic example is the Blue-Black Fairies deck from, we've brought it up now a couple of times during Lorwyn, and this gets commonly cited as the archetypal uh, sort of Magic the Gathering aggro control deck because it combines so many ele- the elements we're talking about. It had the presence of flash threats. It had sticky forms of pressure in in the case of bitter blossom which put a real you know damper on your life total over time but it gave you sort of this ability to keep on clocking but if you just needed to chump with it for a while you certainly could do that and then just uber powerful flexible types of removal effects like uh cryptic command vendelian click that could do sort of multifaceted things where they could both be removing their pressure from their hand if you were playing a troll game, or it could be countering some kind of disruption for the things that were allowing you to just kill them. Another uh, incredible aggro control deck is actually right now, the blue-black rogues deck that we're, we're, we're getting to play in standard. It, again, this deck's not like a format dominant deck to the same degree as fairies or anything like that. But the rogues deck right now, I think, does a really good job of demonstrating good aggro control principles and being having that difficult to play against, very flexible nature. Uh, I, I like that there's actually a couple ways to build the deck. I think that even adds to it because especially not in a situation where it's not an open deck list, you just don't know how aggressive your rogues opponent's going to be. Yeah, one of the things that stands out about the rogues deck in this standard format is that, and this is true for a lot of great aggro control decks, is that they get to pick up as the metagame evolves, whatever the best piece of interaction is within their colors, they're not so necessarily tied to, you know, oh, I need this specific piece of removal to fit into my curve. 
you oftentimes are very much valuing flexibility. And so the flexibility of the core parts of your deck allow you to adopt additional elements. You know, something like Lull Mage's Domination right now is the format is trending more towards creatures, which it has been since the most recent wave of bannings. Well, then Lull Mage's Domination is just totally something you can add to your main deck and it'll give you a tremendous advantage when you play against something like Gruul or in the Mirror, where you get to just have that insane mind control effect that you get in creature matchups. And if, you know, if control starts becoming more popular, if you need to pressure Planeswalkers, go ahead and, you know, stop playing with Loris as your companion. And now you can add back in Shark Typhoon. And it doesn't really detract from the core elements of what the Rogues deck is trying to do to incorporate any of these cards into its main deck. I've got a controversial one for you, BK. Uh, I actually threw up a Twitter poll before we started this. Uh, Do you think that Stoneblade, so this is the Stoneforge Mystic, uh, Jace the Mind Sculptor, Mana Leak, Spell Pierce, Squadron Hawk equipment deck. Do you think that deck is aggro? or aggro control or control? What describes it best? I'm not accepting other answers at this time. Uh, I think it was aggro control. Uh, <laughs> I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna stick to the week's episode topic so we can talk about it. No, I, I do genuinely think it's aggro control. Yeah, I, I mean, I think this deck might even be a little bit off because it actually is has access to such incredibly busted cards that it got to play fully as control while also having the aggro control element, but. I just think any deck that has Spell Pierce, Vendillion Click, Squadron Hawk, and Sword of Feast and Famine feels like an aggro control deck to me. But yeah, that deck was busted. And then lastly, uh, we, we kind of uh, really scoured the the our, our collective minds here for a non-blue <laughs> version of an aggro control deck because I think most of the examples are blue. But you came up with a really good one, which is Jun Death Shadow, which uses Thought Seize and Inquisition of Kozilek as its primary disruptive elements. And I think one of the reasons that this feels different than other like Jun-style decks is it turns the corner quickly. That's just going to be a common theme in aggro control. And we've got examples using Death Shadow later in, in the show. But basically... It can go from having no threats to attacking for 20 damage in, in the span of one turn. You, you know, you're, you're, you're playing your Death Shadow game. You're, you're, you're disc- making them discard. You're casting traverses or whatever Death Shadow players like to do. And then all of a sudden you're like, crack a fetch, Thought sees you, play two Death Shadows. And then next turn, crack another fetch, play another, you know, cycle of Street Wraith attack with two 10-10 Death Shadows. And from the opponent's perspective, you had nothing in play. And then all of a sudden you had lethal in play. Yeah, and the threat of Death Shadow coming in for Team or Battle Rage was something that players always had to play around and be very cognizant of, and so it would force their hand in some ways. Um, I got a, I, you know, I was just thinking through another. I think another great example would be the Mardu Pyromancer deck back when Faithless Looting was legal. Do you remember that one? Yeah, that one. That one would go off sometimes early with Lingering Souls and you know Pyromancer, and it could try to pressure that way with its bolts and Lightning Helixes. But it was very much capable of shifting gears with Bedlam Reveler. And Faithless Looting kind of gives it an uncharacteristic, we think of that more as like blue type selection, where it could sculpt its hand very often to get at the kind of tools it needed if it wanted to play more aggressive or more controlling. Yeah, that's not a, not a, not a bad example as well. It's a great example. Um, what do you think about the Black White Tokens deck that you top A the PC with? That wasn't good enough to be called aggro control. <laughs> <laughs> that we, we were just playing white weenie with thought seas. Come on. It, it, Fair enough. It, it had Sculler, I guess, but uh, yeah, it, it was, it was, it was, yeah, not. I mean, there's a difference here between an ag- agro control and an aggressive deck with disruptive Di- elements. Yeah. Something like humans in modern, I would not classify as agro control. Well, yeah. I, and I think the reason 
is what you're, you're about to say, because I, I just can read BK like a book, which is that the, 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 the black, white deck or humans decks do rely on curving out. And a lot of the anti-aggro tools that you could use would be effective against them. Yeah, I think the flexibility of sequencing is a big thing that defines aggro control. You just with aggressive decks with disruptive elements, you're oftentimes still just going to, you know, play out your token makers, you know, if something like black white a token deck, you're just still going to play them and then you'll use your removal on the right things with your tide hollow scholars, you'll hit the right permanence with humans, you will just, you know, look at their hand with freebooter <laughs> and just take whatever you can freeboot. But with something like a Mardu Pyromancer deck, you very often will make key decisions like, do I want to play Young Pyromancer early and then try to just race and get an aggressive board presence early? Or do I want to sandbag it, spend my early turns being more controlling and then try to have more of a flurry turn in the mid game where I have maybe four or five mana, play Young Pyromancer in a bunch of instants in a row to get a bunch of tokens that can pressure. And it's that sort of element of, okay, I need to evaluate what my hand is, what I think the matchup is like, what I read based on what my opponent has done this game to figure out which of the permutations of how I could play these next couple of turns, which are going to give me the best chance of victory here. Yeah, and I think that's uh, part of the reason why the Death Shadow deck feels this way is because it can send its first couple turns setting up. All right, so let's get on to how to play aggro control because this this deck's a hard deck to play and we're not going to be able to take you from not knowing how to play it to being an expert at it with just this podcast, but we're hoping to level up BK a little bit over uh, the, the, the course of the night. Uh, so the base game plan for aggro control is, you know, you want to establish a threat or a couple threats. Some decks just need one. Some decks definitely need more than that to, to put your opponent under a real clock. Uh, one of the reasons I've mentioned Geist of St. Traff before is because the blue-white decks that played Geist, you didn't need anything else. Once you played a Geist, that's six points a turn. Like, what else could you ask for? But... Like rogues, for example, rogues gets really dangerous. Their threshold is two. You usually want two rogues in play to really be meaningfully clocking your opponent. And uh, once you have that, you counter or disrupt their attempts to stop it or to enact whatever their game plan is doing, whatever it is their deck's trying to do. And then you, you profit. You you win the game by, by outracing them. You're generally not trying to beat every card they play. You're trying to make it so the game is not long enough for them to play all their cards. You're trying to get kind of your, your implicit card advantage by stranding dead cards in their hand by not giving them enough time and mana to to make use of everything they play. Like rogues isn't going to beat like mono green in a, in a huge long grindy game, but sometimes they can just keep them off balance enough to sneak in enough damage. And this, this is what the aggregate control decks are trying to do. Uh, yeah. A good way to think about it is that aggregate control decks frequently have threats that and cards, which create some kind of board presence for them. And they utilize their interaction to limit what is going on with the board, what kind of opponent's threats are sticking around in play to the types of cards that they can deal with. So if you think about, you know, something like a classic example of Stoneblade with Stoneforge Mystic and you search up Batterskull, well, then you can just realistically, there's you, oftentimes against an aggressive deck, there's going to be a set of cards which just don't line up against a 4-4 Vigilance Lifestealer. And because you have that Batterskull, you can just let those resolve and sit in play. But then when they play something that would actually do a good job of trading with Batter Skull, actually getting it off the board, stopping it from further attacking, that's when you get to deploy your counterspell. Yeah, I think one of the big keys with aggro control is knowing what you can ignore. Is knowing yeah. what what cards your opponents are going to play. <clears throat> Excuse me. Knowing what cards your opponents that you can just let resolve. Because actually one of the strongest moves you can do when playing these decks 
is to just let something resolve. Basically, if the thing they're doing isn't going to meaningfully stop you from accomplishing what you're trying to accomplish, it can be pretty strong to not counter it. It can you, Your first instinct is often going to be, of course, you're going to counter their play. But imagine you're playing rogues and you've got, say, two Soren Thought Thieves in place. You're cracking for six in the air. If your opponent plays like a Kazandu Mammoth or some ground creature... Even when they're tapping out for it, it costs quite a bit of mana. Sometimes you got to look at it and say, like, that's just not going to outrace me. I need to save this counter for, you know, the, the Great Henge or their removal spell, maybe their Vivian. Like, imagine you're playing against Team or Ramp and they play a Beanstalk Giant. Like, yes, of course you often want to counter a Beanstalk Giant, but if you have them dead in two turns and they play a 7-7 seven, seven Giant and you're at 20 or an 8-8 eight, eight Giant... You can just take eight. You're allowed to do that. And this way you've got Drown in the Lock for their Genesis Ultimatum, which maybe you can't beat. So knowing when to like let things happen is, is very important for this as well. Um, another thing, basically, you, one of the things we talked about a few times is like, what window are you using to get your threats down? And that's, a, that's something you always want to kind of uh, ask yourself and know about because, yeah, this isn't an aggro deck. This is part of the reason we kind of dialed in actually mid-episode because we hadn't talked about that before, but we kind of dialed in on what, what makes some of these decks feel like aggro control versus aggro. And that is that you don't need to play your Thieves Guild Enforcer on turn one. Sometimes you you're, you want to play around a stomp. You're playing as Gruul and, and you don't want them to have a good turn two. Sometimes you want to use Blood Chief's Thirst on turn one. There's just a lot of different reasons why you wouldn't play your creatures on curve, and you ha- kind of have to know what window am I optimally looking to to sneak these out in. And I think one of the one of the the real big things uh, that we're going to talk about later is when you get to flip the script, when you get to just completely table flip what your opponent thinks is going on in the game, and and that often comes from you slow rolling your creatures or your threats because you didn't want to deploy them earlier. Uh, a common tactic that aggro control decks can utilize is deploying their threats as a way to disrupt their opponent's plans. And what I mean by that is when you have when you are able to resolve a creature like a Geist of St. Traft, a Goblin Rabble Master, a Brazen Borrower at the absolute perfect time in the game, you frequently can make it quite hard for your opponent to do something like deploy a Planeswalker or in the case of, you know, maybe deploy their awesome top-end threat that they love to play at the spot on the curve every game, you know, maybe something like Questing Beast on turn four because they're now so afraid of you being able to just run away with the game with your threat if it sticks around and resolves. And so sometimes deploying threats can be a way for you to actually stop your opponent from advancing their game plan. If they have to take off the turn that they were going to bring back their Kroxa and instead worry about actually killing your, you know, maybe your Ruin Crabs, so that way you don't get too crazy far ahead milling them out or something along those lines, well, then that's actually just a win for you. You have used your aggressive element as a tactic to be able to advance your control game plan of stopping your opponent from deploying a threat on their next turn. So once you have a threat down, <clears throat> you're you're in the position that you kind of want to be in. And every time your opponent plays a spell, you kind of have to ask yourself a, a couple things. And this is kind of what we touched on earlier. Does this, whatever this is, does this stop uh, what I'm doing? Does this kill me? Does this reduce my clock? If it does reduce your clock, sometimes that's fine. Sometimes you have them on a three-turn clock and they play a removal spell. Now it's a four-turn clock. And you're like, well, it's an additional turn, but I still have a counter. So yeah, I'm going to let that happen. I, I, I don't want to counter their fatal push. I want to try to counter their damnation. And then I think the way to look at it is when you have a winning position or when you have you know uh, some threats that are hard to stop, 
I'm generally looking for reasons not to counter something, not reasons to counter something. My the, my mm. threshold gets pretty high because, again, if you have them outclocked, anything that will put pressure on you that doesn't beat your clock, I almost always just ignore because you just you you, you you're going to get them with your Vendillion click and your two two shark token. You don't need to to stop their Tarmogoyf. And then we, we want to talk about games that are a little harder. And these are the games where you don't have a threat on the board. And these are, you know, you're playing rogues and you just open a hand without rogues. Or you're playing rogues and you, you know, you have only one creature and by itself it's not going to mill them for enough. So you don't even play it because your Thieves Guild Enforcer won't even be getting through. In these games, my threshold kind of flips where I'm way more inclined to counter almost anything because I don't have a, a, a way to end the game soon. So you're just kind of forced to adopt more of a controlling role and lean into more the counter your thing, counter your thing, kill your thing, cast into the story to go back to the rogues example. And at that point, you're just forced to play more of a control role because you just don't have a choice. And you can't just let a 4-4 resolve when you have no clock on them at all, right? <laughs> like that's just not not a winning proposition. Yeah, and frequently one of the things that interacting with their early plays does when you don't have a threat is it helps disguise what's going on in the games a little bit. Um, if you, if you're playing like an aggro control version of rogues and you just don't counter, you know, maybe their, their, you know, bone crusher giant or their love struck beast that comes down and it just keeps hitting you. And maybe you figure like, Oh, I can catch up later by blocking it with the thief skill enforcer. It kind of can give away the game in a sense in that, they both know that you don't have any pressure. You just don't have anything to do with your mana and it can embolden an opponent. Whereas if you just maybe snap off a counter spell on one of their early creatures, you know, maybe their robber, the rich or something like that. Well, then they're going to feel a lot more scared about what's going on on your side of the board. It's going to feel like the options for what could happen next between whether you play a soaring thought thief or you have a follow-up removal spell, the range is much wider. And that's one of the things you always kind of want to think about when you're playing aggro control is what sort of gives your opponent the most sort of pause for concern. I oftentimes find that's the best way to like to to approach the matchup in that it's the hardest when your opponent has no idea what's going to come next. And if you can make them think that they have no idea what's going to come next, then it will limit their options and sometimes cause them to make weird plays that they would not normally do. Yeah, that's a great point, BK. This is the the, the archetype that I think most often plays Shocklands untapped <laughs> when, <laughs> yes. when they've got nothing to do with them because control decks want to conserve their life total and aggro decks just always have things to do and they don't bluff anything or most of the time. Aggro control decks, you really want to keep that the range open. You want them to think, yeah, maybe they do have that drone in the lock and they chose not to use it way more than, oh, they just obviously don't have it here. So it's really good yeah. to keep that in mind. And look, we don't want to like tell you to go ahead and start turning into, you know, ridiculous showmen about this. But the element of like passing when you're playing aggro control in a paper tournament of like carefully making sure you are tapping right the, the correct lands to be able to bluff any range of cards that you always pass with blue, a single blue up when you are playing a mystical dispute deck, that sort of thing. And you have a blue and a black up when you have soaring thought thief in your rogues deck. All of those sorts of things are just important and good tips to do. Now, some people take that pretty far, and I don't think you need to do this. They'll be like, they'll accidentally tap the wrong way, and they'll be like, oh, no, 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 I need to make sure after I cast my Blood Chief's Thirst that I have blue up, and they'll make a big like show of it, like they're trying to telegraph that they have Mystical Disputes so you don't run into it. You don't need to do any of that, but it is good to like make sure you have the right colors of man up even when you don't have the actual card in your hand. 
On the flip side, and this is another good little level up, when you're playing a matchup and you have counters, and this holds for every kind of deck with counters, you should have a kind of good mental model of what you want to counter and what you don't want to counter with the goal of not tanking with their spell on the stack and revealing you have a counter. Of course, sometimes you do that to bluff. And the funniest of all situations is you tank bluffing a counter and then you draw the counter and then you just show them what was in their hand and you feel like your bluff, you know, got completely wasted. It's kind of like it's kind of like when you when you get airlocked as imposter for someone else's kill and you're just like you're just like, but I had I I, I had the perfect tile, but I didn't do any of this. And then it's just like, yeah, but <laughs> so Biki doesn't know much about that, though. <laughs> All right. Settle that. It was a compliment. I'm saying you rarely oh, get airlocked. Okay, you almost okay. always win as imposter. Yeah. BK has this low cunning to him. Uh, so the, the 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 best part though, we've gotten to the best part. Th- these are the games th- we're going to talk about. The games where you where you turn the game upside down, and uh, it these are the games where you you have the ability to to go from losing or parity to winning in just a flash. And these are the games that I think really give this deck the feared reputation it has, or th- this archetype rather. And the, so. It, it's easier with flash threats, but it can also work with cheap threats as well. And, and what happens is you you're be, you're you're behind. This is most often what happens. You're behind. You're getting attacked. Maybe they've 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 slipped something through. You've never put anything on the board, but then all of a sudden you play like two cards end of turn. Like with rogues, you're like end of turn thieves guild enforcer soaring thought thief. Or when you're playing fairies, you didn't have a bitter blossom start, right? Those are always the, the, the really strong starts. Fairies was so dumb. If it started with bitter blossom, it always won. And when it didn't start with bitter blossom, it almost always won. So that was one of the first <laughs> cards that got unbanned when I started playing modern and I was like pretty hyped about it. And then I started testing for my first PT and I was like, well, I don't know. I don't get it. This card doesn't seem that good. <laughs> no, it was never good in modern, but, um, but imagine you're playing the fairies and you don't have a bitter blossom and they're at 20 and they think, oh, wow, fairies didn't have their good draw. You know, I, I'm on easy street. And then you go end of turn, Vendillion, click them, take their whatever their instant speed card out. They're tapped out. Upkeep, you play uh, Mistbind, click, exiling your Mutavault, tapping them down. Then you attack them for seven more and then and then have Cryptic Command for their next play. And all of a sudden they're like, I thought I was supposed to win the games where you didn't have bitter blossom. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, you know, it's kind of like the Death Shadow turn we talked about, where you go from having nothing and play to two giant Death Shadows after Thought Seizing. And it's just like, oh, this is why you play Agro Control. It's really this. But these games are also the hardest to navigate. So we're going to give you a couple of things to keep in mind if we can here. Uh, one is if you have pretty high confidence the game's going to end in a turn or two, you can make some really extreme plays. Imagine you can let Ugin resolve. Like, that's not something you ever really want to do, right? But imagine you're playing rogues and you know that, like, if you just let Ugin resolve, play your two rogues end of turn, then untap and play your two kill spells, you can attack them for lethal because maybe you got in damage earlier or whatever. Like, or you're playing uh, any deck with cryptic command and you can just let them resolve their fifth creature, play your flash threat end of turn, attack them, next turn cryptic, tap all their creatures, then attack them again. And yes, I'm not saying things can't go wrong. If your opponent having instants, your opponent having counters, your opponent having a little bit of extra damage out of nowhere, a haste creature, whatever, can always kind of change the the, the rules of engagement here. But, but here's like, yeah, there's some good examples of this. Like if you say you're getting attacked from five down to one by a questing beast, Luis, and you have a heartless act in hand, you could just not heartless act their questing beast, take it because maybe your onboard threat is a brazen borrower. And then if they play a Gilded Goose, you can still actually kill it and attack for a lethal. Yeah. And and when you and, and the thing is, you know 
the game's going to end in a turn or two more than your opponent does. They might be keeping in mind you play against a wary opponent. They're not going to be surprised when you play your two rogues end of turn. But you have more information here. And against people who don't know this is coming, it feels like you're going to they get hit by a freight train. You just don't know what these people you know look like, BK, when when they go from thinking the game's well in hand to just being dead, and it just looks like the sky has fallen. And uh, you also get to lull them into a false sense of security and. This happens actually pretty commonly with rogues. We talked about it earlier where one Thieves Guild Enforcer doesn't do anything. So sometimes it's actually great to just hold it and then have that turn where you play double Thieves Guild Enforcer plus Soaring Thought Thief all in the same turn and your opponent just is like, wait, all of a sudden you have a, a 10 power on the board and you had zero before. Yeah. Uh, with the other thing, you really got to make sure you get the math right. You, you got to <laughs> count and you got to recount. There's nothing worse than making this like all-in hero play where you're like, I let you resolve a Karn and it doesn't matter because I'm going to kill you. And then you you attack them down to one and you're like, that went differently in my head. Uh, Likewise, uh, you you really got to know what they could do to disrupt this plan. If your plan falls apart because they have a path to exile, maybe that means it's still worth doing, but you got to know about it because there's a very big difference between, hey, I'm playing against Teamer Ramp and if I make this, I can map out the next three turns because generally what their deck does is pay seven mana for a spell and that's it. That's very different than, oh, I'm playing against a deck that has tons of cheap interaction. Surely, you know, nothing can go wrong here. <laughs> yeah, I, it was funny. I When I got my introduction to playing aggro control, it was from, I was playing a lot of Splitter Twin in Modern, and that's a con- Ooh, that's aggro combo. Aggro, con- <laughs> yeah, aggro combo control. It's actually, uh, it's actually combo control, but... It's combo control, but every once in a while, I would like, you know, give them all my Splinter Twins, Cranial Extraction, or something along those well, lines, those Slaughter the Games. <laughs> and then I would just, you know... And then I would start looking for more and more opportunities, just naturally playing where I would just win with Vendillion, Click, Snapcaster, Mage, Pestermite, Deceiver, Exarch, Beatdown. Pestermite's a little better at that than Deceiver, Exarch, um, just being a 2-1 flyer. And that was sort of my first experiences was just looking for more and more opportunities where I could just win the game with Bolt, Snap, Bolt, that sort of thing. Yeah, and it's it's funny. This isn't even really an aggro control deck, but it has that element to it. And those kind of wins, knowing how to pull those kind of wins out is really important when you are playing these decks. So besides practice, and of course, this fantastic podcast, it can be hard to know how to navigate that critical turn. Really, you, you should know kind of how how fast your deck can, can flip the switch, how, how like Death Shadow with Team or Battle Rage. It's pretty obvious it can go from zero to 20 in one turn, right? Or I guess over the course of two turns. The Footfall Crater, you know, it's got some applications there too. And then, whereas you're looking at rogues, like rogues is kind of capped where it's not going to be very easy for rogues to deal 12 damage in a turn all that often. But it can really put out six power at instant speed pretty easily. So you got to be familiar with the kinds of games that do that. But once you are, once you've kind of practiced that, these decks can be just absurdly good because you're just, again, really changing what the the path of the game very dramatically and in a way your opponent often can't interact with. One of the big things to keep in mind is how does my deck's control game plan line up against them? Sometimes you'll play against strategies which are really soft to a couple key pieces of interaction. Maybe it's a combo deck. Maybe it's something which, you know, tries to build up and build into one sort of threat. And you understand that if all you do is disrupt that threat, it's going to be easy for you to mop up afterwards. You know, something like a heroic style strategy, like Feather the Redeemed that we saw recently in yeah, Standard. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
But if you and if you know that your control game plan and the cards that you have can handle it well, well, it puts a lot less pressure you to get a clock on. Whereas if you're playing against something like an escape deck, something with you know maybe Croxa or another escape card, which is going to keep on coming back turn after turn after turn, well, you should have a sense, in particular from looking at your hand, to what degree are you going to be able to effectively get full control of this game? And if that's not the case then you need to start shifting around your mindset. So having some idea about, about how your deck's control game plan lines up both in the matchup and in the micro scenario of how do our individual hands look for that sort of game should help dictate how much you feel like you need to apply pressure and be aggressive and take chances with getting the game over with. And you know what's beautiful about this? There's some aggro control decks that can change just a couple cards and then be the control role in those matchups that previously weren't. And your opponent's not going to know about that. And they're not necessarily going to play into it. The Shark Rogues deck did that very well, where the Rogues deck was just straight up the control deck in some matchups. Like I actually played against uh, Ben Stark playing Obs on Yorian, and he beat the other Rogues he played that weekend. And, he, and he, we talked about our match afterwards. I, I, I trounced him. It wasn't close. Uh, he, he said that he felt pretty helpless against this because I just took out the creatures for shark typhoons and counter spells. And all of a sudden I was just the superior control deck. And that's something to keep in mind. I knew that going into the match. He he did too. Cause he got, it was open deckless and, and Ben knows what he's doing, but it didn't really matter who knew what in this particular case, I just had the better control deck. When you, if I was playing a, a more traditional rogues deck, I wouldn't be able to, to play the games with the same unhurried pace that I was playing uh, against Ben with. I mean, how much does the game change against a Kroxa deck when you have your, maybe your sideboard, Cling of the Dust, and postboard? Yeah, it just completely goes from being a nigh-unbeatable threat that keeps you off of uh, seven or eight cards in Graveyard to a, a card that you can effectively deal with with a cantrip. <laughs> so that, that it, it can be very different knowing that you have access to those. So one, th- one thing that's tricky with agro-control sideboarding, so let's talk about that for a little bit. The, the 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 number one thing for sideboarding with these decks, make sure you don't cut too many of your threats. You you really do run the risk of cutting important pieces out when you you say like, hey, I, uh, you know what? I'm going to trim these these curse catchers because I'm playing against a, a permanent based mid range deck and they don't have too many targets. And then then you're playing this Merfolk deck. Then all of a sudden you just don't have enough critical mass of Merfolk to to kill them when you have your lords, or or you just trim your threats too much and you can lose a long game. So try not to go too too far down on those. One thing to keep in mind with diluting your threats is have an idea about what in the matchup do you need to have a lot of threats or a few threats. If you're playing with something like Geist of Satan Traft, you know, maybe you only need one a few threats. And if they don't have the kinds of removal or blockers for it, you might want to even even trim on some threats if it's something like a combo matchup, because that one threat will be so resilient and will so consistently be the only clock that you need. But if you're playing in something where they have good removal for some of your threats, maybe something that even blanks them altogether at a relatively low cost, well, then you might want to side that out. And if you want to be able to get the game over with faster, you're worried about your first threat being traded with, you know, maybe your thing in the ice is going to get hit with a fatal push more often than you're comfortable with for those sort of thing in the ice aggregate control decks that we saw in modern in the past then you, what you need to do is you need to actually bring in maybe even more threats to ensure that you can still get the game over with in a timely fashion. Yeah. Yeah, the flip side, though, is you can juke your opponent when it comes to removal. We talked about this a little earlier. If you know your opponent's just going nuts on removal, then trimming down to just some really resilient threats, like the Shark Typhoon-type threats, can be awesome. Shark Typhoon can beat a whole lot of Blood Chiefs Thirst, you know? Uh, likewise, if they're trimming, if they're getting too greedy... 
Yeah, maybe you have the threats back in. Maybe they think you're boarding out more creatures than you are, and they think it's going to be a game of all negates and mystical disputes post-board, and you just go, well, just go creature, creature, and all of a sudden they're under a lot more pressure than they expected. Um, cool thing is you get to adjust that game per game. They do too, but like we mentioned before, you often, it's more you whether they get it wrong than you get it right. Uh Another thing with sideboarding is having more expensive threats can often be really good in these decks. Uh, Zareth San out of Rogues, uh, Low Mage's Domination actually counts as like an expensive threat because against the mid-range and aggro decks that these decks tend to have more trouble with, aggro control is at its best against combo and control decks. You can take out some of your counter magic because counter magic is just not that good against aggro. You don't need to control the game with that element. You'd much rather just have a bunch of just extinction events and low mages dominations than you can just turn into, you know, a control deck by having these additional threats. One of the other big things with sideboarding is being aware of the play draw dynamics. Um, if you need, if you feel like you really need to be able to counter, say, their four drop spell from an aggro control deck. Well, when you're on the play, you can easily just play your th- your three mana threat at sorcery speed and still be able to do so. But when you're in the draw, the dynamic is tap out on turn three for your three mana threat, and then <laughs> you don't have a counter spell after their turn four play. So that should inform a lot about how many maybe three mana threats you have in your deck post board, and certainly how you want to play the games. Definitely. And uh, lastly, in older formats especially, don't devote too much of your sideboard to control and combo decks, just because. Just count on the fact that your deck naturally is very good against them and usually want more answers against the aggro and mid-range decks that these decks uh, tend to struggle a little bit more with. Yeah, you're frequently trying to shore up the biggest weakness points with aggro control decks. So if there's a matchup, and you oftentimes want to make sure that you can have a 60 full of cards that are flexible, that are consistently doing something in the matchup, you are already coming from a good place and playing with mostly the most flexible cards in the format and aggro control strategies. And so you don't need to worry about upgrading every single last slot. But the biggest thing is to make sure you just don't end up in that scenario where you're forced to like, oh, I'm playing this blue red aggro control deck. And I just literally didn't have enough counter spells to side in so that I still had to have shock in my deck post board versus control. Yeah, and doing some sort of due diligence with sideboarding is, is, all, is always recommended for that, in that exact scenario. <laughs> Uh, and then, and then the the last thing we want to focus on here is playing against aggro control because again, that is quite challenging. Um, the 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 biggest thing is if you can keep a clock off the table, often that'll force them into the paradigm we talked about earlier, where they have to use counters on worse things. They, they, their ideal scenario is having like around five power of creatures in play. And then countering two spells and you're dead. But if you can keep that from happening, if you can keep your life a little high, if you can keep a threat off the board, sometimes they're forced to do counter some of your dorkier, more mid-range things that normally they, they might just ignore when they're near, near the end game. Uh, likewise, know which of your removal spells are good, which ones are alive, and when to keep them up. And this is what's tricky is if you keep up mana for removal instead of playing a threat, they can really punish you by playing like card draw or cycling or doing anything other than play a creature. So generally, you don't want to skip on playing a card to keep up removal in the early turns against them, but it can be a lot more effective uh, later in the game. You can also try to go over the top. These decks are a little vulnerable to that sort of thing. Rogues in particular in standard can't beat a resolved Great Henge very easily or almost ever just because 
they don't really have a good way to interact with that. So knowing what cards they have trouble interacting with can be huge. Uh, Cavern of Souls is obviously always a, a good card against these counterspell-based decks in older formats. Even in standard, I remember caverning out Thrag Tusks and Primeval Titans was how they how you would actually beat the Delver decks with these ramp decks that would otherwise be kind of vulnerable to them. Yeah, they're frequently trying to, like you mentioned, compress the game. So if you do have a way to blow it open a way that consistently sort of gets around whatever the disruption is you know maybe it's something like a a card with a good cast triggers well it's just going to be very difficult for them you know i think of edgewall innkeeper in the current standard it might be that their plan for the rogue stick is to typically counter all of the value generating creatures so that their opponents don't get too far ahead on cards or anything like that edgewall innkeeper just provides a pretty easy opportunity you just play it on turn four, turn five, and then they if they don't counter it, well, then you just immediately get a cast trigger for playing an adventure spell and you gain the value. And if they counter it, well, maybe now you've opened up the window where something that's frustrating for your opponent resolves. Now they have to play off pace. So sometimes slowing down and not play into, into the early action is right. A lot of the, One of the big things with aggro control is that there's oftentimes not hard and fast rules to play the games. Just like they have to read you to figure out how they want your cards to line up, you kind of have to read them to figure out how you want to line things up against them. Yeah, and and to go back to the point you, you just made a, a little bit about drawing the game out, imagine you're playing against an aggro control deck that's leaning on Mana Leak and Remand. These are the kind of counters that really do not age well, and, and later in the game they get a lot weaker. We're not seeing do. that much these days, though, with, in that element, though. <laughs> Well, the thing, yeah, and I mean, this comes up with mystical disputes sometimes. And so here's the thing. you, you We've talked a lot about how to play around counter spells. It's oftentimes one of the defining uh, sort of aspects about being a successful tournament player in Magic just because they very frequently allow a card to resolve that will change the game or it won't. And if you can make it happen, then you win. And if you can't, you lose. Oftentimes, just games just come down to that. The heuristics for counterspells versus control decks can be very different. So for something like Mana Leak or Mystical Dispute against a control deck, you might literally come to the conclusion that given the way that they play the matchup, it might be right for you to wait until you actually have six lands before you start playing any of your three drops so that none of them can ever get hit by Mystical Dispute and so you just strand them all in their hand. If you do that against an aggro control deck and something with an actual clock against you, inevitably what's going to happen is, okay... I'll wait until I get to six lands. Then I'll play my second best three drop. It'll resolve. And then I'll finally, so or maybe it'll get hit by their hard counter. And then I'll finally get, play my actual good three drop on turn seven when I or when I have seven lands or six or seven lands. And now it'll get through their mystical dispute. They no longer have the hard counter. And meanwhile, they killed me with Brazen Bar, or, <laughs> you know, last turn. And so that's a case where in one scenario, you're attritioning out the control deck, and in the other one, you're just getting beaten up by their aggro plan. Yeah, th- there have been a lot of games lost in Legacy that didn't need to be lost because someone decided to play around days by waiting a turn, <laughs> in which yes. case the days player already won. That's that's all they wanted days to do anyway. <laughs> yeah, frequently with flash threats, aggro control decks rely on the threat of counterspell being as good as the counterspell itself, and you want to be aware of when you should actually not let that be the case because sometimes they just don't have it. Sometimes your second best spell resolving the next turn or your second best spell getting countered first by a soft permission spell is just fine enough it didn't allow them to deploy their threat and then it made their and then they just never could get their threat down the other thing is aggro control decks tend not to have very access to very many sweepers so if you can really flood the board you can often just put them in an untenable position if you get to like 
play a turn one elf and then they don't kill it on turn one. And then you just like the mono green in, in pioneer can do this very easily where you just, even if you're just like burning tree into Jade light Ranger and then the spirits player is like, well, you have more of a clock than me. I don't really have that much in the way of like mass removal. So I'm trying to deal with these things one by one, but you're already ahead and now you're playing more cards. Like this, this is a key to defeating these decks and post board is not going to work quite as well. Cause this is where the Delver decks bring in rough tumble when they play against goblins, that sort of thing. But in game ones, especially, and in, sometimes just over the whole match, if they don't have good sweepers, you can just jam and, and, and get there. The, the last tip I've got here is, is definitely the, the most useful. It's a don't play scared, but also respect counters. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. And we've been talking about it. it. It's hard. There's no, you're never, one of the things that's, that's kind of like tough about playing in counter spells is that you don't know what they had on any given turn of the game. So sometimes you wait a few turns and to set something up and then they drew the counter spell. And sometimes you just run into it and it resolves or, or like you don't run it out there and then they draw the counter spell and you just don't even know that like, had you just run it out there on turn three when you weren't playing around their soft permission spell or we're playing around it rather, it would have just resolved. Yep. <laughs> and and you don't get like, it's, I, I guess it's like a bad fidelity of signal if you want to think about it that way. You know, humans are really good. We're all really good at, at responding to positive and negative stimulus. And one of the frustrating things about playing against counter spells is that you oftentimes experience a lot more of the negatives because you literally don't even expose yourself to just running it out there and seeing what happens. Yeah, it, it is by definition reactive. So when they play it, it's when they had it, but them not playing it does not indicate that they don't have it. <laughs> Yeah. Hard card to master for sure. Yeah, well, I mean, this is the kind of the quintessential counterspell episode where you're mastering b- both sides of it, ideally. And th- these decks are, w- are one way to really leverage that. Also, if you're good at playing against these decks, it, you can get a lot of extra mileage, too, because these decks, more than any other archetype, and I don't even think it's close, really kind of make a profit on the opponent's missteps. Because just by definition of how these decks are constructed, what they're trying to do, it entices and leads your opponent down the path of not even making missteps, of just not having information to make a play or making a play with the best information they have. Like you could, you know, we could play and I could make the perfect plays for my position every time and you could still beat me easily because of how these decks are set up. They just force your opponent to make bad decisions. All right. I think that's, that's a long enough love letter to, to aggro control. But it, truly, if you if you haven't played a good aggro control deck, you are missing out. This will test your skills like nothing else. And at the very least, being on that side of it, it's always useful to know. Like, even if you're, like, convinced you're going to play Gruul, playing some games on the rogue side against Gruul can really give you a sign of, like, what you're scared of, what starts are, are good against you, what you don't care about, and, and sequencing and all that. So highly recommend playing aggro control. And uh, I look forward to well, probably playing rogues at the at the next uh, <laughs> at the Zendikar Rising Championship. Uh, we'll see about that. Huh? <laughs> you can find me at LSV. You can find BK at Abext. Uh, we're here every week, and we love to hear from you. We'll see you next week. All right. So, wanted to have you finally up. come around to conceding the election to me? <laughs> <laughs> no, nah, there was there was a lot. I mean. I think I kind of won if you if you only count the legitimate votes. Oh, that's true. That's true. <laughs> uh, that actually was going to be on my list, though. I had a couple things that I was going to shout up as things I was thankful for this year. So nice. 2020's obviously been a pretty crazy year. I mean, uh, it's oftentimes kind of flabbergasting when you just think about all the things that have happened this year um, with the pandemic, like just the sheer sort of way that it's disrupted all of our lives and the fact that 
I think right now I'm mostly like keeping it together. I hope everyone out there is, but you know, it's been, it's had its ups and downs to be sure. But just this idea that like, basically we wouldn't like leave our homes essentially for like nine months. And you know, it'll probably end up being about a year is just something I could never have even fathomed before. Uh, But a couple of things have sort of made this year a lot more bearable. So the first thing I wanted to shout out was sort of just everyone in Denver here from my roommates, Sam and Matt, to the people at Luis's place, him and Gabby and Raptor's been hanging out there and Justin's been around. And and then some of the friends that we've had who stayed with us for some of during quarantine, Josh McLean and Caroline Cavanaugh. I mean, it's really made it a lot more bearable. The fact that I've been able to have some social contact with people in a way where I trust that they're all keeping the proper like quarantine procedures. And I know they're not exposing themselves to any sort of real risk. And so that that's been something that's really made this whole experience a lot more bearable. The second thing that I'm thankful for is streaming services. Um, This was a really good year for like every company to develop a new streaming platform between from HBO Max and Hulu, Netflix, even Quibi, was good for a few viral videos on Twitter. If you haven't seen the golden arm uh, short video, I highly recommend searching that just search Quibi, the golden arm, and you'll see exactly what I'm talking about. Uh, Recently I've been catching up on the crown and that's been a real delight. The queen's gambit before that. And then the last thing has just been the fact that it's, it's been a weird situation with sports, but just, you know, a lot of the general ways, like a lot of the magic tournaments I would normally be following along with have been gone. And I've been watching a lot more sports from watching the NBA to now Notre Dame doing so well in college football. That's been a real delight. So, you know, I, I try to keep a keep stock of the things that have helped keep me sane and and try and made this year just a little more bearable. And then I guess last thing I would add on to the list is the fact that the election is over and that, you know, I, I happen to be happy with the result and you know, maybe you'd argue that there's even been a result yet. I don't know, but <laughs> I think we can all be glad that we don't have to watch any more presidential debates for a while. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I can, I can second that one. 